0: I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 255, No One Vexes Him Like You Do. This week, we're discussing season 5, episode 13 of Angel, Why We Fight, and episode 5 of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, Arabella.
1: As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, Angel is up first this week with why we fight. Um, I want to start with all the flashback stuff, because even though the episode sort of cuts back and forth between the flashbacks and the present day stuff, um, and obviously they're connected... I don't feel like it's really necessary to kind of go back and forth. It seems like this is a fairly straightforward story where you kind of get the background context for Lawson and what his whole deal is um, sort of upfront. And then we can kind of go through, you know, knowing kind of the background of what we know, then talk about like what exactly are his grievances and Um, what he does in the present day Um, and his his airing of grievances right um
0: (laughs) how'd you know i was thinking that (laughs) um, or rather or rather i knew you were thinking that right that's probably more accurate
1: it's yes it's a it's a mutual thing um there's so words you can't use
0: yeah Uh, sorry i was just gonna say one thing is that like like, not only is there, are the flashbacks, like, fairly straightforward, like, they definitely are. It's not like some where you get, like, kind of hopping around, like, different centuries even, like, sure. with some of the, you know, Darla and Spike and, and Drew flashbacks and stuff. Or at least decades. Um, where, yeah, this is really, I mean, it's all pretty compressed time on a submarine, right? Um,
1: yeah, literally.
0: Right. And, uh... So not only is it like fairly straightforward, just kind of taking you through the paces there. I think of any like Buffyverse episode that has flashbacks. Like it also has more flashback than any of, like, I think there's more time spent in flashbacks than Mm -hmm. maybe any others. And I, I, I haven't timed it. But based on just, like, sense of where, um, like, just in watching it, it feels like there's more flashback than current story. Mm. Um,
1: yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think you're probably right.
0: Maybe the only exception to that would be, are you now or have you ever been? Because that one feels like there's a lot of flashback to it as well. mm mm-hmm. But that would be, like, like those two are, like, really the only, like, mm-hmm. maybe ones. Like, all the other, usually it's, like, it, the flashbacks are to enhance the current story. Whereas I feel like the current story, and I'm just thinking this as I'm saying it, so feel free to call BS if, if you think differently. But I feel like the story is the culmination of the flashback. Versus the flashbacks enhancing what's currently Mm. going on in their lives. Because there's no real, like, benefit to moving the current arc of the season along from the story, as far as I can tell.
1: (laughs) Sure. I mean, I think that thematically it touches on things that are sort of ongoing and relevant in the current season. Um, but it doesn't, I agree that it doesn't necessarily move them forward. Um, like, I, w- I don't think it's a complete non sequitur. Like, I think this idea, sure, um, this, it, it continues, you know, to be every week, this discussion of these sort of moral gray areas and this um, ambiguity of what they're, doing with Wolfram and Hart and all that sort of thing. And it kind of the idea of taking what is considered, I guess, like if world war two is sort of the epitome of the kind of just war in this current century or the last century, the previous century now within the Um, last
0: hundred years.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, Then like kind of using that as a setting where like everybody's very, straightforward and patriotic and sort of unambiguous about their motivation that you know they they know why they're fighting they and they don't feel conflicted about why they're fighting and they don't feel conflicted about what they're being asked to do and um which is not the case with pretty much every other war in the last century um you know and and beyond um then like i kind of see like what like where the kind of Link is there, but, um, but yeah, I kind of agree that like maybe so little time is spent on the current sort of plot line with Angel and Lawson and, you know, the other guys, um, that it doesn't really, at the end of it, I'm not quite sure that it does move the story forward other than just to be another example of, wow, things are really confusing and we're not quite sure what the right answer is here. Um, although even as I say that, I kind of realize that's hardly unique for the Wolfram and heart season. Like what this episode is demonstrating is that that's been true all along. Um, it's not like Angel always had a clear cut sense of right and wrong and then, Oh no, they took over Wolfram and heart. And now I don't know which way is up anymore. It's sort of like, well, that's been true. Uh, ever since he sort of got his soul back and has been trying to, lead kind of a good life and make amends you know that doesn't always work out and we see like a very clear example of that here so like i don't know that it's completely irrelevant but i don't know that by the end of it we really are further in the current storyline than we were an episode ago
0: yeah and that's all i meant i i agree with you that there's definitely something as thematic resonances with kind of what they're dealing with during this season. But yeah, all I meant was that like, it didn't, it it just felt different from a standpoint of where we typically get flashbacks to sort of provide additional insight to the current Mm -hmm. storyline. This doesn't seem the case. It feels more like a, a side or a tangent.
1: Yeah, and I and I think the way you kind of framed it is probably right that in a way the present storyline enhances the flashbacks rather than the other way around. Like like they kind of show the consequences of the main story, the main story being what happened in the sub, rather than the flashback being the thing that adds insight and context to what's going on in the main story of the current season so it's a little imbalanced that way um and i actually kind of wonder like if like if this could have been something where you i don't know maybe in order to really dig deep into those questions and kind of do it justice um that maybe they could have almost split this out into two different two different stories like you could have had a kind of episode with the sub and all the flashbacks and then like maybe later on, like even several episodes later brought back Blossom and kind of really had the time to deal with things because like what's, I think if there's anything that's like challenging, it's, it's what, and I'm jumping around and jumping ahead here, but it's, that's fine. Sure. Um, we, we've like
0: been talking
1: Around the flashbacks, but
0: not, like, about the flashback. (laughs) Like, we haven't even really gotten to the meat of the flashbacks themselves yet.
1: Yeah, so... But I'm even kind of jumping to, like, the climax of the flashbacks themselves, which is, like, this whole, you know, the the angel bites Lawson to save the lives of the people on the sub.
0: And... Is that, like, man bites dog?
1: (laughs) So... I guess it, um, the episode kind of centers around that. Like, you know, his kind of ends justify the means of even with a soul, Angel. Th- this is, as far as we know, right? The only time that Angel has, like, deliberately, knowingly turned somebody since he's had his soul again.
0: That's and what he says, and, and it seems to be accurate. That's no
1: small thing.
0: We, we, um, we have no, so it's not the only time he bites someone. You right, know that. but like,
1: right, but turns, fully turns them and, and does so knowingly. Like, not, not under any, like, not like when Angelus comes back or, like, this is clearly Angel in his right mind, sort of choosing to do this. Um, and... So that's kind of ambiguous bombshell number one. And then number two is this kind of idea that because he has his soul, Lawson also kind of has a bit of soul in him or a bit of, like, they hint at this. Yeah. And I feel like both of those are... That's a good question. Neither of them are treated, like, they're both kind of dealt with so quickly that, um, you know, if there's any sort of profound insight there, we don't really have the time to unwrap them. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe with some kind of restructuring, this could have been a little bit more useful to the current storyline, but... um,
0: Yeah.
1: But other other than just as another example of kind of the muddy waters that they're treading in. Um, I don't know that it goes a lot further than that. I don't really expect to like ever hear of this story again or, or hear of Lawson again. Like, I don't think there's a lot of ongoing significance. It doesn't seem to me.
0: Sure. Um, So so, kind of along the, the idea of like themes and stuff. Um, One of the other things I was just thinking about too, kind of, triggered I think by your not like triggered triggered but like the thought was triggered by um your mention of sort of World War Two sort of being maybe the last like black and white like good and evil kind of war at least or at in, least in the mind in, ter- in terms at of how time. we view yeah. it. Yeah. Or even then.
1: Or now you know
0: yeah. Um right, historically speaking. Which I mean I think well all right we won't get into that but anyway so like i i i don't tend to disagree with that viewpoint i guess is the road i was going down with and i don't mean to undermine it but i also think that there's an element in here of even in those types of wars where maybe there is a sort of clearer cut good and evil um i do think there's a lot of um you know room for interpretation and and um kind of like in this case almost literally there's like a a devil in the details Mm -hmm. to sort of show that there's uh maybe a little more gray in in kind of how things work themselves out you know um things like the manhattan project you know you have science scientists working on weapons of mass destruction that you know are maybe not the types of things they would rather be working on and putting their you know high intelligence and you know skills to use and that kind of thing um or um you know just even I, I think even with um you know stories like all quiet on the western front or that kind of thing which i know is world war one but you know same idea of you know sitting in a foxhole with your or uh, you know blasted uh you know crater where you've got someone from the other side like literally dying before your eyes and Mm -hmm. you get kind of the Sam Gamgee and Faramir like looking at the you know dead Haradrim you know wondering like is you know why did this person leave their homeland you know where they loved people and you know maybe loved where they were living and you know what lies were maybe they told to come here and all of that kind of thing, where you know it it does have that sense of, you know, more grayness in in the specific situations, where even maybe at large you can still say, no, there's a clear, <laughs> eventful episode, um, you know, where maybe in in the grander scheme of things you can uh, still say there's there's a clear good side and a clear bad side, or you know, whatever, but right. maybe in those immediate altercations it's hard to maybe see that level, um, and maybe it's not that clear of a distinction from one side to the other.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, and and there's just a basic sort of trolley problem for Angel here of, of does he you know, by in order to save the lives of these other crew members, he has to take one. So he's kind of a bit screwed either way, you know, either way he's going to come out of this with, you know, some sort of feeling of responsibility for people that died. Um, So like, even apart from the kind of morality of the warfare and the tactical side of things, there's just the basic, which of those evils is kind of the one that he's going to choose um so yeah so okay another question i had about the back the flashback bits for where does this fit sort of in angel's timeline and does it matter i mean we've had so many flashbacks at this point that I sometimes find it a little hard to keep the timeline entirely straight, but, um, you know, I think they make it very clear that this is Angel with a soul, you know, who's kind of, he's not living in the gutter, but he's, you know, not exactly living with other people. He's sort of depressed and alone and in a, you know, apartment by himself and everything. Um, And they and they break in, uh, to kind of, you know, force him to get involved in this whole war effort thing. Um, so yeah, I think you mentioned, was this before we started recording? You mentioned, you know, are you now or have you ever been? And this would have been before that, right? Cause that's the sort of whole McCarthyism yep. era. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's, I don't think this, this doesn't seem to me to fill in any necessary huge gaps, um, but it's earlier in his timeline than sort of I was expecting for a story kind of about Angel with a soul and kind of knowing right from wrong and, you know, having a, you know, fairly clear sense of that, even if he's sort of willing to do what needs to be done, um, right yeah is there any other like other than being sort of closest to that 1950s timeline is there any other like context that i'm forgetting
0: no there's some fairly big gaps in angel like what we know about him right like um because it seems to be like 17th 18th 19th century or yeah or maybe it's only 18th 19th i forget exactly when he gets turned i think it's the 17th so like 18th and 19th century and then Mm -hmm. um you know we do jump before this the closest in time that we had seen is um are you now or have you ever been except for in Buffy when we see his Whistler days, right? Or is that? Yeah. That's in Buffy that we see that, right? Like, because that's mm-hmm. before. Because cause we talked about this, right, when we started um, talking about Angel, that Whistler was going to be the Doyle character. Right.
1: There's a similarity. Or, or
0: rather, Doyle, Doyle yeah. is yeah. the replacement for Whistler right when... I don't know if it was the actor, that they just decided to go with something different, or, or I don't remember exactly what. Um, you know, so like things like the Boxer Rebellion and stuff, which is nineteen hundred, would be mm-hmm. like the next closest thing, but that's another forty year gap, right? So right,
1: which was when, if my memory serves, he's been reinsold but there's a period of time where he still kind of keeps on living his, his sort of Angelus existence. And which um, to
0: me, like that's more impressive than his living on his own and not having turned anyone. Like if he, if he manages to like go with Darla and drew and spike for another, however many years after, you know, being cursed, like that seems like it would have been a lot harder than living alone in a basement somewhere. Sure. (laughs) You know, um, or, you know, even a hotel off, you know, in some room where you can just sort of lock your door and order room service um, or whatever. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like along the timeline, he's sort of, developed a bit more of a conscience than he had then. Like he kind of hadn't really at that point had the capability of breaking with his habits. Um, Whereas like by here, he seems to have, but um, you know, then when he gets into the sub and bumps into Spike, Spike doesn't know that he has his soul, right? He's kind of just assuming that for whatever reason, they haven't seen each other in a very long time. And Angels, you know, or Angelus is the kind of vicious killer that he always was. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah. Anyway, just that doesn't add a whole lot of insight. Just kind of wanted to get the timeline straight. Yeah, um, no, I
0: I mean it, it is kind of interesting because there's this is definitely. We don't know exactly when in World War II, but so it's either the late 1930s, or early 1940s, right? So, like, it's only 10 to 15 years maybe before are you now or have you ever been mm. at an outside shot, 20 years, but like, that's yeah, but... not like, like, just thinking of when the McCarthy era was and when, you know, World War II was like that. That's yeah, it's kind probably of more like 10, yeah. Yeah, 10 to 15. So, um, yeah and then then it's like jumped to the 1990s when we see Mm -hmm. him with whistler and by that point he's living in the you know alleys and eating you know eating rats and that kind of stuff which you know so there's always like the the answer of well they just didn't anticipate like fleshing out the story this much right like that's sort of like the tolkien answer right like you just had to. You just have to flesh out more, like as you write more story, mm-hmm. you know, um, and sort of retcon your own stuff, which I think, you know, in the Buffyverse they do a fairly decent job. It's not always one hundred percent successful, but I think by and large there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff they do pretty well with that. Yeah, I guess the question there is like, is it, is it the weight of his soul that like is what gets him there. Like the longer that he sort of lives with these voices and memories and all of that, like he first tries to, you know, um, sort of seclude himself from society. And then like, it goes even further to like, you know, almost like the, the homeless crazy person who's Mm -hmm. hearing the voices in his head kind of thing. Until Whistler kind of comes and shows him that he has a purpose and, you know, is something a little more than just, you know, a vampire or whatever.
1: Right. Which is what he kind of connects with Lawson here at the end of that's what Lawson was looking for was, um, you know, a purpose for like, not just fighting, but why we fight, which I think like yeah for all that world war Two had its own ambiguities and atrocities and it's not like you know the quote good guys were pure and clean and didn't you know drop each bombs on people um and that like civilians <laughs> yeah right like yes like serious you know serious horrors were you know committed um and not all of them by Nazis, but um, at the same time, I think that is, I think what separates it in kind of our, you know, national and, and world consciousness from, you know, maybe from World War One or Vietnam or, you know, Iraq or whatever is you you could at least point to there was a purpose behind it. You know, you could point to something that, was being done that had to be stopped. Um, And that's not to say that everything was done well or perfectly or justly, but at least there was a kind of cause and a just cause, um, you know, to the war that was being fought. So, and that's kind of, I guess, what Angel in this period is lacking between in this kind of time, the, you know, the 50 or more years that he's sort of, has a soul, but doesn't really have a purpose. He's just sort of existing and floating through and,
0: yeah.
1: you know, not really doing things with any sort of intention or sense of reason or higher calling or not really doing anything for anybody other than, I don't want to say doing it for himself. He's not really doing anything. He's just sort of there. Yeah. Um, right. yeah, and, like not doing anything good or bad, just sort of continuing. So, um, yeah, I think it kind which, of. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. No, I was just gonna say which to um, actually talk about one of the actual flashbacks, <laughs> like in the in that one where. Well,
1: I feel like we've been talking around them, but.
0: Yeah. No, I know, and and I don't. I don't even know that we need to go through all the plot. Yeah, I mean, I don't I think, think the plot is that. But, but to just to highlight um a specific instance of kind of what you're talking about you know when you get the i don't know recruiter can we can we call him a recruiter um you know who who comes to you know his um apartment or whatever and you know kind of you know ask him like you know have you ever thought about like fighting for your country and angel's like no (laughs) like I I have not, in fact, thought about that at all, Uh, which, you know, I mean, when you think about it, like, Angel's certainly above the draft age at this point, right? Like, you know, however old, 100 and whatever, 200 years old, or I don't know how old he would be at this point, but, um, you know, he's certainly, like, too old to be drafted in terms of, like, actual years, but on the other hand, he's not human so maybe those rules don't strictly apply um it also makes you wonder like who else our side is recruiting like along these lines um obviously we see you know spike and the prince of lies and right uh right there's a
1: kind of demonic arms race going on here like yeah yeah exactly it's just another weapon of mass destruction that's the idea of i guess the nazis kind of capturing and experimenting and breeding you know vampires is to make them another weapon of war
0: although like and you notice it's specifically about their brains right so there's like the i mean it's not foreshadowing because like we already know the story there but like spike in the initiative and stuff like sure it's sort of
1: that like a prototype of that
0: yeah yeah, it's like um oh what's like that like mk ultra and then like you know the various like versions of like um the military you know dealing with like psychotropic drugs and like that type of experimentation going on as sort of this military just uh just yesterday i saw on facebook something uh from live science where they're talking about like the military wants to create um insects that can carry you know viruses and stuff and it's like you know so certainly this type of thing goes on like this sort of experimentation of you know putting together like these really scary uh you know things in service of military goals um That may or may not also have very scary civilian applications, you know, behind them potentially, and
1: and life of its own that you can't control and contain, you know, and like inevitably, these things will escape and not do what you want them to do, and you know if whether it's you know if it's a natural thing, if it's you know insects or biological, you know chemical weapons or whatever, like, they're going to yeah. attack indiscriminately. Um,
0: um, yeah, this is, this is like the uh, demonic version of the Jason Bourne project. Almost, sure. right? Like, or at least, you know, it, it, or it could turn into that
1: anyway. Right, right. Uh, I was thinking of Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, I see, mean. Life finds Like, a it's, way. it's yeah.
0: a common. Yeah trope in many yeah. forms. Um, yeah, I, yeah I was thinking, out of control. I was thinking more of like the military, military aspect yeah. or the, yeah. you know, clandestine aspect to it. But yeah, I mean, like there's different aspects that are kind of being put together here for sure.
1: Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And, it, and, and that's, even in World War II, that seems fitting that it's not just the Axis powers that are experimenting with these sorts of things that if they're kind of weaponizing you know, demons and monsters to do their bidding, then, you know, the the US and their allies are going to, you know, have to keep up with that. So yeah, so Angel's going down, he can sink just as quickly whether he wants to go down or not. And they don't really right. get a lot of, he doesn't get a lot of choice in the matter.
0: Sure. And there, so of course, there's also like the whole like, season three, season four break, where like, He's like, I'm not going underwater. Like, I'm not getting you know trapped underwater. It's like, right, right. Well, you will someday.
1: Yeah. Um. So you mentioned Spike's other vampires, the you know the Prince of Lies, and um. (laughs) Yeah. What is the other guy's name? Nostoyev or something. Um,
0: Uh, Yeah, a Rasputin's lover. Yes.
1: So um, I got a real vibe off of them of uh, what we do in the shadows. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Oh, We might have to maybe put that one on the queue. So that's a a New Zealand uh, mockumentary by Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi, who did uh, *Flight of the Concords. Yeah. So it's a mockumentary about a group of vampires that are roommates. In I mean, New I, Zealand. I already love it. You already love it. Um, so yeah, they they're flatmates in Wellington. And um, and it's a documentary about their lives as roommates living, you know, trying to get by as vampires in kind of modern New Zealand. But the, the funny part is what reminds me of these guys is that each of them has a very distinct character that kind of draws from a certain vampire tradition. So, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, the, Jemaine Clement looks kind of like a Dracula-type, like Vlad the Impaler. Taika Waititi is very, like... Interview with a vampire, like this kind of, you know, like <laughs> yeah. kind of a Tom Cruise in that movie, sort of little, you know, eighteenth century gentleman. Um, right. And then, and then the one that lives in the basement is like the Nosferatu, I've, I've seen, like the creepy, course. like rat-like, pale one that is out of control, and they can never get him to clean his room. But like nobody wants to tell him that he should clean his room because he's kind of scary. Um, Anyway, this this I mean this came first, so if if anything you know the influence you know goes the other way. But um, it reminds me a lot of that kind of thing of like
0: right. yeah, There's,
1: here we are with this kind of Rasputin figure and and right the Nosferatu, very sort of Slavic
0: you know. know like yeah heavy you know right right uh, these are
1: clearly European vampires
0: right. Um, yeah. Well, which they would be. And which like, they would be,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, where the Axis powers were, but, I mean, it would be right in that Austro-Hungarian... Sure. You know, Carpathian mountain region, right? Like,
1: Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yep. kind of trying to push their way east. So, yeah, they would be kind of picking up these Eastern European... Um, yeah.
0: Right.
1: So... Anyway, that's a great movie. That's um, They're actually going to make a... FX is going to do like a TV version of it. Um, oh, nice. But but I, rec- I recommend the movie highly. Um, um,
0: so, okay. So speaking of Prince of Lies, since we brought him up here real quick. Um, Camden Toy, who we've talked about uh, previously in this podcast. Because he's played a number of um, other... Uh, creatures uh, uh mm-hmm. you know villains i guess um including uh among them one of the gentlemen from hush um i think that was his first appearance um also naro from um the episode mm-hmm. where willow returns to sunnydale and no one can see her and and he plays the flesh eating demon where he's kind of like picking at right. her skin um, right, like
1: flaying her alive. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The right, the Ramsey Bolton character of right uh,
1: of the Buffyverse of the
0: Buffyverse. Yeah, and then uh, he also played the Uber vamp, um, and I believe in all its instances. I mean, I'm sure it was like special effects and CGI when they had like or or an early version of that. You know, when they had like all of the. Um, underground ones but like at least the ones that where we see like Buffy fighting and, and mm-hmm. him going around and stuff that's, that's Camden Toy so okay, um, this is his final appearance here um, in Angel but yeah just wanted to kind of bring that up that he he's one of those great sort of really creepy monster uh, yeah. players and, and this one in particular because it's kind of funny right like yeah yeah i
1: mean there's something about just the way they throw around the prince of lies as his name like well this is these are my colleagues you know nestor and the prince of lies and the prince
0: of Lies. yeah (laughs) and and i think what's funny about that too is because of the very nasferatu look you get the sense that he's um similar to the master right like in, right, in right. Sense he's like so
1: like,
0: old, yeah. Yeah, he's so old, and and kind of has all you know this power and authority and whatever. Like, yeah, he. I mean, he is, you know, they're like Madonna and Prince, and you know, like of the vampire world, where like the, you know their titles more than names, right, right. right, right. <laughs> um. So yeah. Anyway, uh, but also just because like he plays sort of a funny you know, a funnier sort of role yeah. here. Um, less creepy and more just like like, oh, so w- so when do we get to eat the, the people again? You know.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, and Spike is there too. And, you know, like kind of to kind of see Spike in Nazi uniform is sort of I don't know kind of a like they're playing with kind of something dangerous there because you know we like Spike by this point you know he's kind of been moving steadily and and crossed the line into being one of the good guys you know over the last several seasons and so to kind of on the one hand throw him back to being a villain but on the other hand like he will eat the Nazis too so, you oh, know, yeah. you kind of are allowed he's to completely... cheer for him even as he's sort of wearing a swastika and it's sort of right. this kind of weird thing of, like, I don't quite know where where you stand with Spike at this given moment, yeah. um, whether to kind of be on his side or not.
0: Well, I mean, and I think he's definitely amoral, right? Like, he's not right. on the Nazi side because he's a Nazi. He may even not even, like, Disagree with the Nazis, but he's there because it's expedient to, you know, him getting his happy meals with legs, right? Like, that's, it's like, oh, hey, here's a fresh tin of, you know, fresh meat that I can sort of prey on for a while. And, you know, he doesn't have to worry too much about, like, where he's getting his next meal Mm -hmm. uh, as far as all that goes. But, um, yeah, like, I think... It is easy to forget that, like, oh, right, before he had this chip inserted, he was, like... And even, like, afterwards, like, he keeps having to remind people, right? Like, hey, I'm evil, remember? Like, right, right. Like, yeah. I'm not just some... Uh, now, I mean, maybe he wasn't always the most effective of the big bads or whatever. And, and we can see that, especially with, like, like after Drew leaves him, he kind of goes downhill pretty fast. But, uh yeah like it's easy to forget uh which is a good question of like where is true here by the way mm-hmm. um yeah yeah but it's easy to sort of forget that like oh yeah he's he is like a pretty evil vampire who who has a reputation and a name mm-hmm. and this is again so placing it in context it's after boxer rebellion he's already killed the slayer
1: yeah
0: and will kill another one in right you know 30 40 years 30,
1: right 40 years
0: yeah um So yeah, yeah, just... uh...
1: Yeah, again, I mean, I think we've had this ongoing for a long time with Spike that it's easy to root for his redemption. And and because he's sort of funny and likable, you need to kind of be reminded every so often of like, hey, don't forget, he used to be evil. Like, you know, just like he literally says that to the characters in the show, like it's good for the show to kind of go back every so often and indulge in... Evil spike, so that you kind of don't take good spike for granted too much. Um, yep, so yeah. Um, but also because he eats Nazis, it doesn't completely break from the new kind of likable spike either. It's like you're kind of allowed to enjoy his villainy a bit.
0: And I, and I think again, because it's rooted in that amorality, so you know, it's not, yeah, I think, I think there's a
1: right he enjoys eating anybody um that just happens to be who he's shut up with
0: there's still a double standard there i think because obviously we see like any other vampire who doesn't have a soul as like purely evil so like there is still sort of like a different way that we're viewing spike obviously like looking back on
1: yeah
0: on it here but um
1: I and do we think can't, we can't help but do that. I think.
0: Yeah, I, I think that there's like the part of the willingness to forgive is to maybe say, "Oh, well, he's just more animal-like, right? You don't blame an animal for like eating. Like you don't call a bear evil if it like kills and eats someone, right? It's yeah. just it's an animal. It's dangerous. It's you know, just not something that you should go near. You know, if you see one in the woods, like yeah." But that doesn't make it evil or that it has a malcontent towards people necessarily.
1: Um, now, I don't know
0: if we can go that so far with vampires, but I think at least that's my sort of impetus in seeing Spike there. It's like, oh, well, it's the vampire's nature, right? To just, mm-hmm. like, eat everyone. Right. It's not that it's good or bad. It's, it's just going to kill anyone. It can, because that's what it does.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that's kind of the the weird retroactive you know redemption that comes with the storytelling of because you're seeing it what you're seeing is in the past but in the context of the future and the present because of the way it's presented you I think can't help but view it differently um you know and and you can't help but view him somewhat more not sympathetically but no without the knowledge of where he's going to go later on um and there's kind of no way to divorce the two whereas like in life where you only ever experience things in the moment and going forward you don't like you know you don't ever get to see your own life with the benefit of hindsight like as you're living it Mm -hmm. um whereas i think that's kind of what these sorts of flashback stories like allow us to do like at the we're simultaneously seeing Spike as he used to be, but in the knowledge of what he's going to become, and I that that can't help but affect how we kind of view his old character um, anything else about the flashbacks in particular, or should we kind of <laughs> transfer over and uh Yeah. You know, like, I think you kind of said, the present-day stuff is pretty thin. Um, like, Lawson comes back. He's pissed that Angel turned him. He claims to have a bit of soul in him, which I guess juries out as to the truth of that. Um... Yeah, I don't so, think we have a lot of evidence one way or the other. Other than, other than that, he does seem to be genuinely conflicted. I guess that's the biggest sort of indicator that there is something more. Because like we don't generally see purely evil vampires wanting revenge against their sires. We usually see them reveling in their evil and except Jeremy Renner. Except Jeremy Renner, runner um, exception to many rules. Sorry, I don't, yeah. I don't know what that means.
0: I, I, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think, for the most part, like I think for the most part, it's there's more of a what happens with, you know angel and then drew and then spike it's where it's like the vampire right. sort of creates their own following it, it's more right. a recruitment and proselytization tool than right right, um, right. anything um
1: right you know and also with be, the master like even
0: yeah. it, like there, there's even Right, angel gets upset at times when darla goes off to be with the master right like isn't that one of the episodes where is that when spike is newly minted right and they're like oh where's darla and angel's like well she went off to you know do whatever i mean we couldn't get julie benz to come do the episode it might might be the real reason but like the the story reason is oh she's off doing the bidding of the master right
1: and he is bothered by that yeah yeah so i mean and obviously like even with spike and angel there's conflict it doesn't mean that you always you know adore your own sire without question but like yeah i think the the general rule is that there's some gratitude for having been like like the the, the newly made vampire usually reacts by saying you know their first impulse is to kind of be grateful that they've been given this whole amazing new world and life and opportunity and to kind of bask in that. Whereas like that doesn't, I don't, I guess we don't know Lawson's whole story. Like, was this a gradual thing? Was this an evolution he went through? We don't quite know, but he doesn't necessarily seem to share that, that unambiguous kind of joy in what he is. Um, Like he is like capable of evil things, but he doesn't, but he seems more like this, the unsold vampire who doesn't like what he is or what he does. So I don't know, that kind of does open the question. Like if vampires with souls bite people, does that mean they create more vampires with souls?
0: Right I mean we have a we have a set of one, yeah because we, I mean we yeah. at, and at this point we only have two vampires with souls that we know no,
1: we and all it does is open the question, it certainly doesn't right. answer it, you know, right. but it it hints or suggests that that could be a thing, um which most of the of the two vampires with souls they're not in the habit of turning people. So it's not something we get a lot of data about, but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else about Sam's grievances? Um, I mean, That's sort of it. We don't even really get a lot with the supporting characters. Like He kind of just kidnaps them and uses them as sort of leverage against Angel. Um, But we don't really even get a lot of scenes with Gunn and Wesley and Fred. Um, Lauren goes off to a meeting. Good for him. So he kind of misses the whole adventure. Yep.
0: Right. He went off if we have to work, I'm going to a party right, like, right. that's that's lauren party. Yeah. he's he's working, but you know, yeah, doesn't mean you can't have a few sea breezes
1: yeah uh, yeah, and there's some kind of each of them makes some sort of line or other about the amount of work that they're doing and everything, but again, I think that's just the ongoing struggles of working at Wolfram and Hart. I don't think we really get any new information this episode.
0: Yeah. Um I guess the only other thing is that like Eve is still sort of around, around right? Like yep. she she escaped um and they don't know what happened precisely to uh Lindsay. No. He didn't die. He got no. sucked into a dimension of some kind.
1: Right.
0: Um So, yep. you know, oh, what, and the you, you know and what you know what that mentioned- means. sure like sure not gonna Um, say hints about anything but you know if you don't see them die on screen yeah and even when you do see them die on screen right it doesn't necessarily mean yeah we're done with them
1: sure and they also mention again the fact that the white room is still empty so there's you know so now they have no sort of panther sure. conduit and, the, and and Eve is gone too so now both of their ostensible connections to the senior partners have been have gone um, so there's sort of the open question of what next and how will the senior partners sort of choose to communicate
0: sure um, yeah or will they or will they um I don't know that there's much to be said about like the current stuff other than just those little reminders that we, it, it's, it's a lot of it's placeholder. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like, remember, this is kind of where we're at team. You know, Eve yeah. is, Eve is still around. Lindsay's gone for now. We don't know about the senior partners. They may or might not come back. Uh, okay. Like, and, oh, let's go off on this, you know, midnight kidnapping excursion yeah. in the meantime. Um, I will say going from this to the next episode, I won't give any hints about the next episode other than to say it is frequently cited as one of the best of Angel and even Mm -hmm. frequently like they, they tend to keep Angel and Buffy as separate like shows when making top lists. But in the few that I've seen where they combine them both, it often makes it into the combined list as well. Mm -hmm. So I'll just throw that out there. I'm sure you've probably heard and or seen elements of it, um, Mm -hmm. but I won't mention the title or anything and just sort of let you see it naturally. I'll also mention that between this episode and the next one, between the airings of them, um, is when it was announced that Angel was being canceled. So okay. that obviously doesn't affect the production because the production would have already been done, but it might affect production of episodes that come after the next
1: one. Sure. So,
0: um,
1: just, And it certainly would affect reception. You know, how how sure. is it viewed by the audience and sort of contextualized sure. and everything?
0: I don't think that necessarily um, downplays, like, in the long run, how it's still often seen as a one of the more mm-hmm. favorite episodes. I mean, we can get into some of the some of that kind of stuff there, but just wanted to sort of mention yeah. that it's uh, frequently included in those lists. So. Cool. Okay, so uh, let's move on to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noro. So, I was thinking about this. Um, seven episodes. So we were past the halfway point last episode, so I was kind of thinking, if this were like a three-act play, we kind of get to the end of Act 2 here, right? Sure. Like, right. this is kind of, I mean, it doesn't
1: right. the exactly end the
0: even up, but, because you can't divide seven by three, but like, that would kind of, like, the death of Arabella, and getting thrown in jail, and you know, figuring out, and then I guess it's like, if it's, like, the traditional play, like, his escape from jail would be, like, the beginning of, like, Act 3, maybe. Sure. Right? Like, that last little Yeah, there's little a lot scene. of...
1: There's a lot of... Breakthroughs. Like, you know, and breakouts, but, like... Sure. Like, like, more from the character, like, Jonathan and even, like, Emma coming to... Realizations of things that they mm-hmm. like. This mm-hmm. is like a big turning point sort of episode. And, Everybody and even, kind of is on their track for the end, whatever that is.
0: And I feel like even for like secondary characters like Segundus and Childermas, right. uh, both right. have kind of like their definitive. Like you know, you get Segundus becoming a little more confident and you know, sort of seeing. I mean. Segundus has always had sort of a certain level of competence. It's just the skill that he lacks, right? Like the he, he doesn't have Strange's innate ability. Um, though he's not lacking inability completely, um, as we see here, but but I think it's the confidence and the sort of um using at least as much as he has to kind of move forward a bit. Um Draw, yeah. Uh, not drawlight. Um, honey, honeyfoot. Oh, honeyfoot. No, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Uh, honeyfoot. I think even a little bit as well. um, yeah. With his sort of. Well,
1: yeah, and that's kind of it. It only just kind of occurred to me now that like, at in as them as sort of the foils for drawlight and lacelles, Like as drawlight and lasells are sort of moving away from each other. Mm-hmm. Um honeyfoot and segundus it's like their partnership starts to kind of really flourish like they've been kind of together but this is the first thing i feel like that honeyfoot other than like maybe pointing a gun full of walnuts at Childermas, this is like the first like really like useful (laughs) thing that honeyfoot's done like he suddenly like yeah (laughs) like so I i don't want to say he hasn't done anything Um, But, like, this is, like, Honeyfoot has a really big, like, assist here, where, like, maybe Segundus is still kind of the leader and still going to be the guy who kind of puts it together, but only because he has Honeyfoot kind of giving him this vital information. And so they're kind of becoming a better team, whereas, like, their foils are going opposite directions. Like, Drawlight Mm -hmm. is in sort of debtor's jail, Lascelles doesn't want anything to do with him and so they've sort of started to separate themselves from each other yeah and
0: and lascelles is also like severing connections on norrell's behalf right like with the publisher and stuff so right Um, and
1: and chill like working at getting children mass out there and you know doing everything he can to isolate norrell
0: is there any like our podcast is generally PG. So like the word that I'm (laughs) thinking of, is there any um, less jerky of a move than, or more jerky of a move, I mean, than his, you know, not just saying, you know, can we talk without the servant's presence, but like repeating it in sort of the tone. Yeah. Like the tone that he does. Um, Like, I think, because there's some real jerky moments in jerky's the word that I was going to replace with another one. um, Yeah. Moments in, in, you know, various episodes throughout here. But I, I have to say that like those uh, condescending, you know, yeah, uh, whatever. And.
1: Yeah. Like maybe because, I mean, we're so used to aliens and monsters and things that like, you know try to kill you and like are kind of honest in their like monstrosity Mm -hmm. whereas like lascelles is like i think that's why maybe it's more offensive is it's so sort of polite and refined you know Mm -hmm. like saying the most monstrous thing but you know repeating it pointedly and like yeah it's so it just gets under your skin yeah
0: Anywho, let's um, start at the top, so the title of the episode is Arabella, which is a bit of an ironic title. Sure. Because we don't get a lot of Arabella in there. I mean, especially considering that while we might get the actress who plays Arabella, it's not actually her in, uh, sure. you know, a number of scenes. So um, wanted to kind of start with them and talk through them being the strangers, um, and talk through kind of what happens to Arabella and kind of how, um, Jonathan deals with it. Um, hint, not well. Um, (laughs) spoiler alert. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know that I have an answer or even that we need necessarily an answer for why she's in the episode so little. Um, it does seem weird that they named it after her. Uh, yeah, I guess that...
1: it it does draw attention to the fact that she's not in this episode much.
0: Um, like there, there's
1: sort of an Arabella-shaped hole in this episode. Sure. Um, like, yeah. And, All, and I mean, although there's
0: a lot of talk about her, it's and, about
1: her. right, right. So, there's a lot of talk around the hole, but she is not present.
0: And and I um, guess th- this brings up, like, the question, I think, of, is this, like, the sort of classic, um, you know, the the kidnapping of, you know, a wife or sister or mother or whatever to, like, prompt the male, the you know, hero to action kind of thing? Or is it a commentary on that in some right. respect? I mean I would like to think Susanna Clark would I I don't remember exactly how it's handled in the book and how it's handled differently. I mean we don't get a chapter called Arabella that I recall. I don't well, remember. Well,
1: I it I mean probably what we're getting in here spans longer. Well, like it's, it's probably several chapters worth of of content that we're getting so even if there is a chapter called arabella i doubt it covers exactly the same things as this one yeah i mean i guess is this a fridging is a is a good question to ask um
0: good term i had forgotten that term
1: i think in some ways it kind of is one and that doesn't mean that like it's this is a bad story and and what it does is irredeemable or anything but like yeah I think in the way you just kind of put it she does sort of disappear um which is used as motivation for Jonathan um to sort of go further in his story and his journey and everything I mean I guess some twists being the fact that she's not actually dead um which is sort of what what the gentleman is banking on is that he's going to kind of fall for this trick, um, which he does. And then I guess the other wrinkle is it's also motivation for Emma as well. It's not just the male heroes that are motivated. It's also, sure you know, there's also this other female character who kind of is spurred to action because she knows that something's happened to her friend and everything. So I feel like that kind of adds some I don't, it doesn't subvert it, but it adds some wrinkles that maybe you don't normally see in a like classic version of this sort of thing.
0: yeah, that's a good point, although I would just sort of counter not counter argue but like just reply, I guess with the fact that like part of Emma's response is to call Jonathan. <laughs> sure (laughs) right so it's it's also not um not entirely just like motivating herself to like get up and do something on her own it's right right calling jonathan to do something um which is what it is and i'm like i don't i didn't necessarily intend to talk a lot although i mean we can keep talking about it if if you have more to say certainly but i just wanted to at least call out that fact that like for an episode titled Arabella it certainly talks a lot about her but like Mm -hmm. doesn't portray her much and and does have that um bridging which again is a term I had sort of forgotten about um but does yeah definitely kind of have that effect there so Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and I think it's something we can continue like i'd like to kind of come back to the question since the characters are all still living or in various like mm-hmm. you know dimensions and realms so i think it's kind of an open question like to you know to what extent do arabella and emma have agency over their storylines um
0: i guess i shouldn't say uh, emma solely uh Calls out to Jonathan. That's one of the things she does. But in Lost Hope, she does say, "Like I was trying to warn you." Like, mm-hmm. like, so I don't think it's only that she's calling out to Jonathan. But that's one of the things she does. Yeah. So maybe it's maybe it's not entirely accurate to say that like her motivation is only to call the man, so to speak. But
1: sure. sure. Um, well, and and I think it's it's playing with. It's trying to be somewhat truthful to the period in that, right. like Jonathan is the educated man who is capable of helping them out of the situation. Like maybe if, sure, maybe if they had some magical education of their own, they would be able to help themselves. But they don't. Right. So
0: it, it's like, not you, you're
1: rather limited in your options. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. It's not. Uh, it's not the women's fault that. You know they won't teach magic to the women, right? Like, right, right. um, Yeah, and I mean, and if they did, it would probably be, they would probably be like hung as witches, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, Or you know, stake, you know, uh, burnt at the stake or whatever. You know. So, Mm -hmm. um, what was the? Because the house. that Jonathan and Arabella were in that was he was trying to raise right, like that was built from rocks from the Raven King's castle well, was
1: yeah, it's the one where Emma is in now, right isn't it the one that Segun right Bought to turn into his but it was school? a it, it, yeah. it, it
0: was specifically um right, a like woman's a sorceress. name yeah. who he was trying to raise right it was her house what was it and I'm trying I know I can't remember the name uh now um i can't think of it yeah so it's not even like there's no precedent for women but you have to wonder like what happened to her and you know clearly her knowledge like like they're not calling on her i mean he he was in that particular instance i guess um but it's all the raven king and you know strange and normal and and the men folk doing the magic at this point Mm -hmm. um Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I don't have much to say about the Waterloo stuff. Sure. It's. I mean, I think war and he's doing magic and. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. What were you gonna say?
1: The only, my only kind of one sentence takeaway, I think, from that whole thing is, um, is like the the PTSD, the kind of. Sure. Staring out the window, kind of shaking hands, you know, gray in his hair. Just the sense that that plus what ends up happening to Arabella are the kind of contributing factors towards this sort of break he's headed for. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I think it's characterization for him, like beyond just being like a big special effects sequence and everything like right it's it, an exciting it's all, thing to film yeah like it's kind of see. you yeah. know but i think like the main character takeaway is is the kind of negative impact it had on him I, um
0: i do have to say visualizations like this actually do help me more than sometimes descriptions in books um i i mean maybe it's just cuz i've never been to war or seen like you sure. know a war Thing, but like you know something like this where it's like in the book it's like you can read like you know i don't know grant like yelling at him you know do something about the man at the wall and it's kind of like oh okay you know yeah. you're still reading it the same way that you would read like oh ha-, you know pass me a cup of tea or something right, you know what i mean like it, it, it there's no even when there's description around what's going on it it is sometimes for me personally hard to sort of visualize that so i think it does give a sense of um yeah sort of desperateness or the Mm -hmm. uh the desperation i guess would be the appropriate term um or the sort of frenzy of like what's going on and kind of all the different things that he's doing and it's like oh we don't need more rain but you know we do need to put the house out you know with water and you know, by the way, there's men climbing up the wall. see what you can do about that. And, you know, they're breaking through, stop them. And, you know, like, just being called to do all of the different things and sort of remembering that, like, um, uh, uh, you know, Wellington sort of saying to him before, you know, I, I demand the impossible of all my men. I don't see why you should be any different. And, um, you know, just kind of that idea of, like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of things going on here. Um, I think the other piece of it, and probably what contributes a lot to the PTSD aspect, um, is one, well, two things. One, almost being killed, right, like, gets, you know, a very near shot that kind of blows him up and sets his ears ringing and, you know, lands him on the ground. But then also the the kill, the, Mm -hmm. the, like, the direct personal killing of the man. I I mean, or at least that's the implication of what happens when he, you know, like the mud hand guy.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, I think we don't get confirmation, I guess, but like the implication Uh, is that like he crushes him in the mud hand. And um, like, this is the, you know, maybe the same magic that made the horse, horses from sand you know the horse Mm -hmm. sand um it's you know making the the hand out of the mud here um i don't know if i mean i assume you're watching this on netflix too so like right before the opening waterloo scene you're getting the previous um you know flashbacks to with the quote of um you know could you kill a man with magic and you said you know well a magician could kill a man, but, you know, a gentleman never would. And here he is, like, flinging men with vines and mm-hmm. um crushing them literally with, you know, his hand. And so, you know, t- like, going back to the Angel episode, like, talk about, like, your gray, you know, sort of war experiences, right? Like, does this mean he's no longer a gentleman or does it mean he's... a bad magician or an evil magician or like what's you know what sort of does he have to deal with and does this make it easy then for him to sort of swear off of practical magic um, Mm. and sort of abide by Norrell's terms um, you know which maybe before he wouldn't he wasn't quite as willing to do. I mean even with getting even with like the forest scene before where like his whatever Batman or valid or whatever you call him um, was, you know, killed and the books were destroyed and whatever. Um, you don't get the sense that it had that same sort of, per- like it was shocking certainly, mm-hmm. but it you didn't get the same sense of like trauma as you get. Sure. From here. So I don't know what to do with that necessarily. Just to sort of point it out. That like it definitely yeah, seems yeah. like he's more in the thick of things than he was even.
1: Yeah I mean I think before. it's exponential. I think I think this builds on the kind of earlier war scenarios and stuff. But like definitely this one I think you have a much stronger sense that when he comes back it's he's very changed and shaken up by that Mm -hmm. and maybe it is that you know for all that there were traumatic experiences what really puts them over the edge is the kind of not being killed but the first hand experience of killing and Mm -hmm. kind of killing someone with magic up close kind of you know
0: and yeah personal and like looking in their eyes kind of when you're doing it yeah
1: yeah yeah Um, Yeah, and and I agree, like, it's a helpful visual thing, because, like, Waterloo sounds so kind of refined, you know, like, 300 years on or whatever it is, you know, 200 years, so to, like, kind of have a a visual thing, you know, helpful for me, not being a historian of that period to kind of see, well, the Battle of Waterloo is this mud and rain-soaked hellscape you know like that just looks like the worst possible place you want to be Mm -hmm. um kind of helps without having a whole other episode of him being at war you just get that one scene in the beginning and you kind of all right now we have a context for he's home a second time but this this was not you know even more than the first time this was not a good experience right um and and it gives him motivation to want to put practical magic to the side and just focus on his book and his marriage and his family and his estates and kind of live this quiet existence Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and right so you do get the very stark contrast with like the sort of domesticity that he's embraced now right like very much just him and arabella in their country house um I think, right? Is there, like, they're out in the, they're not in London still, are they?
1: No, they're, no, yeah, they're out in the country again.
0: Yeah. And, uh, right, because she's, like, out walking on the, or, well, the Moss Oak version mm-hmm. of her is out walking in the middle of, like, the fields and stuff, right? Um, So, yeah, so they're, you know, just sort of embracing this, like, laid-back country life, you know, restorative uh life of retirement (laughs) almost right like Mm -hmm. um talking about having a family and you know starting a family and um she sort of encourages his book writing and all of that um and yeah is very much uh just kind of okay with like taking a back seat um to which the only sort of interruption then is this um, is so who who is the guy who comes and it, I I couldn't have we seen him before was he from like one the first episode or something
1: I don't think so I don't think we've seen him before I think it's just someone in like the village nearby that right. knows like that they've grown up with like
0: right because he says that he's he's seen. Arabella, since she was a little girl, right? Like he knows who she is, and like because so he sees he sees her, or well, he sees the moss oak. I've been calling it M.O.A. Moss (laughs) Oak Arabella. You know, sort of wandering out in the heath or the field or whatever you want to call it. Um, And uh, yeah, he he comes to Strange to tell him. And Strange is like, well, no, she's right here. I can go get her. And he's like, no, no, I don't want to bother anyone. Uh, but, you know, I definitely know who I saw. And it was her. And um, Not quite sure what's going on there. And then the next day, so in the middle of the night, Arabella... Gets up and, like, sort of, I guess, hears the call. Or, well, it's, it's uh, Stephen who comes to the door, right? And mm-hmm. um, she gets up and and goes with him. Um,
1: yeah, and specifically that he tells her it's something to do with Emma. It, so well, there's he this says your friend. Your friend, right. Yeah, right. he's vague or he implies that there's something to do with Emma. So there's this sort of mutual concern that each of them has for the other, you know, they're each of those, you know, the the friends are kind of trying to look out for each other, um, which I think it helps explain. I mean, she's kind of enchanted, so maybe you don't need a big explanation, but sure. I think that kind of helps Arabella to have the motivation to sort of leave in the middle of the night is there's this sort of, you know, things are kind of spooky and enchanted, but there's this sense of your friend is in trouble. Go help her
0: yeah um and and Stephen is trusted and trustworthy like right, like she knows that he's a a good and dedicated servant, like right it's not um yeah, it's not uh you know something where you know it's just some random person, you know, it's not right. like vinculus came to the door or something <laughs> right. right like right,
1: or draw lighters
0: or, or yeah or right, someone who's a little less trustworthy,
1: yeah
0: um Yeah, Stephen is known to be a a good and faithful servant, um, which he is being, just not to Lady Pole, right? Right. And, I mean, not to his detriment, I mean, like, that's not uh, necessarily a um, condemnation of him. It's, you know, he's under enchantment as well. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Right, he doesn't have a whole lot of choice, but yeah so yeah his trustworthiness is sort of exploited
0: she is um taken to lost hope in a sort of like mad dash carriage ride and running through the woods and Mm -hmm. um all of that the fairy wood uh yeah and so when jonathan wakes up he just sort of goes down like he sees that she's not there and he just sort of goes down and has breakfast and doesn't seem too bothered by it until like nobody seems to know where she is, and then the guy, whoever he is, who we don't know, comes back and is like, you know, I see, I've seen her, you know, wandering again, um, on the moor, or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I so. Here's a question. I the fairy gentleman has other than Stephen. So I think Stephen he sort of like knowing the sort of servant response is to always be positive and acquiescent, right? Like he sort of uses that for Stephen. But for both Emma and Arabella, mm. he doesn't get permission from them, right? It's it's from the men right. in right. The, their lives. Yeah. Or, I mean, not strictly. It, the favor he's doing is for Norrell to raise mm. Emma from the dead. And so the price is her part right. of her life because right, right but the bargains
1: with norrell yeah. but the
0: bargains with norrell to yeah. give her life so i get that in a sense like there's a i mean it's twisted and fairy-ish but like i understand that because he's giving the life to norrell you know to imbue into emma so to speak right like like the 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 pact there is actually with norrell and not emma so if he retains half of what he's giving like there's a certain sense there mm-hmm. i'm not sure i totally understand this pact with strain in exchange for mm-hmm. emma or uh, in exchange for arabella excuse me um I mean I I guess unless we, you just think of women as property and which maybe that's all that it needs to be cuz that's what it seems to be right is the is MOA says to Jonathan like oh do you accept me that I'm yours like there's very much a possessive yeah. nature to it um yeah. there and so maybe that's as simple as it it needs to be
1: I mean I guess I see it more this one as less of a bargain and more of just a trick. Like, like I agree that Norrell's... Except even that though, the
0: gentleman uses the term bargained.
1: Sure. Well, but I, he does. And maybe to him they're one and the same. But I think there is a difference in quality. Like... Even though Norrell and the gentleman are bargaining with something that isn't theirs, there is a sense of a transaction. Um, whereas like maybe the gentleman wants, I, th- I mean, I think he's cheating basically. So maybe oh, by, sure. by the strictest literal definition, it's, it is a bargain in the sense that we're trading something and he's, and he's getting an acceptance of the bargain. But I think he's, even the gentleman is sort of straining the rules to their loosest possible meaning To say that, like, this is a trade of any... Like, he's doing something under the table. And, like, being... Where he was already kind of evil, he's now kind of being dirty about it, too. Like, he's underhanded. Um, Whereas, like, Norrell's was, I think, more evil and twisted as it was. It was more of a straightforward transaction. I mean, even that had a trick element to it. It didn't quite sure. mean
0: what Norrell thought it meant. It's it's how do you interpret the, the half a brand. life. Yeah. yeah,
1: Yeah. But this one, even more so. Like, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I see that they're contradictory. It's more like, it's even where it was already a very kind of loose agreement. This one is sort of even more so Um, I
0: i don't i'm not i don't necessarily i guess i'm just trying to think of like like is it possible to give away something that you don't own right like just i mean in a just in a general sense of like any court would like say like oh well if you didn't you know own a house you can't sell it to someone else now i mean yes charlatans exist and have you know done funky things with titles and legal documents and all of that kind of stuff so so yeah maybe that's maybe it's just like oh this is the fairy version of that um yeah but i don't know i guess i i guess it's that part that i'm sort of hung up on is like to like why can't like why does why even the pretense then why not just Mm -hmm. kidnap her and, like, I mean, there are fairy stories like that, right? Like, there's, like, sure. changelings and stuff where they just swap out, you know, a baby for something else. And, you yeah. know, there's no bargain element to it. Um, I don't know. Well, I, I think
1: the, I mean, the bargain element, I feel like, must be in the fairy rule book somewhere. There must be some sort of, you know, magic before the dawn of time that says... Fairies can only take, they, they can only take something if it's, you know, given. And, and like like the vampires can't enter the house unless they're invited. Like, that's just in the rules somewhere. But maybe the gentleman can kind of strain that to be as, techni- you know, as much of a technicality as he possibly can make it. The point of, like, why not just take her? Why even pretend to, like, switch her out? I feel like that has to do with tricking Jonathan into not looking for her. Like, it's about... Now, it doesn't really work because he's kind of convinced to bring her back from the dead anyway, but it's about creating a scenario where Jonathan doesn't realize she's been taken. Whereas if she just went missing, he might want to look for her. Whereas, like... Having her die in his bedroom, at least there is a period of time where he is where he believes that she's dead. Um, and he could just leave it there. like if Arabella's brother had her had his way, Jonathan would just say, "She died, it's over, it's time to move on, and then the gentleman gets to keep her, and nobody's any the wiser. So I think of that as like a practical kind of. so I think they're like slightly different questions Um, but and that's all just my interpretation but yeah that's how I've read it Um, yeah so yeah how about those attempts to raise her from the dead it starts to get kind of icky pretty quickly.
0: Sure. And, I mean, of course, none of them work because he's trying to raise a log. In- interesting that <laughs> right. that the form doesn't revert, though. I guess maybe that's part of the enchantment sure. that, like you're saying, if the point is to trick him into not looking for her. Like, if, it, if MOA dies and, you know, becomes a log like immediately Jonathan's like, oh, I've been tricked. (laughs) Like, Right, right. um,
1: And again, that just makes kind of intuitive sense to me that even though it has the form of Arabella, it's a log. There's nothing to revive. Like it was never really living. It never had a soul or, or a life of its own kind of to begin with. So it kind of, I can see that just from a purely physical point of view of, his spells just don't work on it because it's a lump of wood um, but yeah, it further kind of is further armor against Jonathan realizing what's really going on,
0: yeah yeah, um, I mean, we even get the reference, of course, to the corpses he raised. What um, was well, like the Italian corpses, right? Who come back? Right,
1: the the Neapolitans. Yeah, um, right, right. I did something of a rough sort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah.
0: It was pretty did rough. he ever? But I mean, maybe with Arabella, about like, because like the problem there was that he couldn't kill them again, right? And like now it's like, well, maybe that's not a bad, you know, side effect if sure. she if she like never dies um, again. Although we don't know. Like, just because just cause he can't, like, re-corpsify them or whatever, like, does that mean they don't continue, like, like, are they just, are they zombies now? Like, or are they, like, the actual people that they were before? I mean, they seem to have, like, the memories and stuff, but do, yeah. like, do they continue decaying and stuff? Do they eat? Like, do they, like, what, we don't know all the details behind that. And I, I doubt he does, right? He didn't? Yeah,
1: no, I don't think so. <laughs>
0: Because, like, the, the result of was that was that they burned them. Presumably, if they're still alive, like, ma- if they're still magically enchanted, like, is this how you get, like, bones that can talk and stuff? Like, in, in fairy tales? Like,
1: like, the bone of song, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, like, you know, like, if all the flesh is charred away, like, okay, like, maybe they can't move around anymore, but that doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that, they're not enchanted right. any anymore. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, and like, then, how far I, does that go?
1: <laughs> yeah. And he's not really thinking about long term. What does no. that mean for Arabella if he if if he is able to do it? Like, because I, I think you only have to think about it for a minute to realize that's not what she would want to live forever as a rotting zombie. Um, Sure. Yeah. So I don't think he can possibly be really thinking, you know, like, uh, you know, or I don't know. Is that part of the, maybe that's where the critique of the frigging comes in that he doesn't really consider what she would want, but just kind of goes into what he wants.
0: I do think that he's definitely exhibiting that in this instance. And, I don't, I mean, it's Henry who basically has to say that to him, right? Like, her her brother comes in and is like, look, man, this is not what she would want. And you know mm-hmm. it, like, if you take a second to think about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I I would think that that's part of the Um <laughs> uh, Just yeah. to sort of answer that. Or at least give my interpretation of that. Um, yeah i mean he obviously he he tried well and so speaking of henry (laughs) i i'm both sort of like laugh i'm both amused and sort of annoyed by how um or not not i'm I'm amused and sort of um i don't i don't know what the word is by how annoyed he gets uh Mm. when he's like well i can spare a half hour like you know, like i can are are you hungry? I can spare a half hour, like I guess you know, yeah. since you came all this way to see your dead sister, um or like when he's telling him like like compose yourself, man, like you know yeah, and and you know what a funeral, why would we have a funeral, like I'm gonna raise her back from the dead, like
1: right, there's a little he's a little numb to his own grief, but also like there's that sense of like emotion is a bit shameful, like, like, come now, like, there's no, there's no need for this carrying on, you know, of, of grief over your sister, you know, and yeah, I think that's, part of that is the kind of, the culture, and part of it is, it's it's the Englishness of it all, (laughs) right, like, kind of embarrassment of emotion, but it's also, like, Strange knows what he's about to try to do, which is, like, Why would we cry and have a funeral? We're going to see her in, like, ten minutes. Like, he's about to, in his mind, just revive her, and then everything will just be sorted. So, you know, get over your weepiness.
0: Um, The other thing, like, through that period is... And I guess this is a... I mean, it is kind of a criticism. I was going to avoid that term, but... Mm -hmm. um, of not always being clear about how much time is passing And <laughs> these. Sure. Um, so we get the sense that, like, at least several days. But then there's, like, letters. So I don't, I mean, this is the early 1800s. I don't imagine the post travels especially swiftly. Um, but I don't know. Maybe he, Maybe, like, he's having these letters delivered, like, personally by, like, his own yeah right maybe
1: he's kind of sending one of his guys to um like emergency overnight it to norrell trying to like get his. and i also don't
0: have a good sense of where like norrell's in london so i like english geography for me is like i know where london is (laughs) i know wales is on the west and I know Scotland is up in the north. That's like, well, that's like the UK for me. Like that's Britain. Uh-huh. Like, and that's like all I know, <laughs> really. So sure. like, you'd think I'd know more, having studied English literature uh, enough. But um, I mean, I know like here, like I know where Oxford is in relative to London. Yeah, yeah. you know. But like beyond that, um, I'm not real clear where Strange is. I don't even know. Have we been told like where his country estate is other than I don't know somewhere know to the north,
1: it seems like? Well, I don't know that Strange is Norrell's home is up in the north. Okay. He's up in Yorkshire. Um I think Strange is somewhere in the south. Probably like in the London area, but like or not terribly far from London, but like in the countryside. Um and for me I I don't always um not infallibly so, but um tend to like go by the accents and stuff. Like and his you know, his servants and like the guy who comes to say that he's seen her wandering in you know, the fields and everything, um, seems to be like southern accents to me. Okay. Um, so, so I think they're like they're so kind maybe of maybe
0: it's not far
1: it's not part of London
0: where, where you could... terribly far. Feasibly have someone write a letter the same right. day, you know? Right,
1: like within a within a day or two or something. Um. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But um, I don't know if I don't honestly remember if they said specifically where their house is. So. Um. Yeah. But yeah, I mean the the. I don't disagree that just as a general critique, the timeline of like, is it months? Is it weeks? Is it days? That's not always clear in, in the show.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that said, like, like there's several correspondences to Norl, mm-hmm. um with no response um norrell doesn't respond to any of them right like
1: i don't think so i don't think he
0: does but like strange waits a couple of days or i mean he's probably doing stuff like in the meantime but um yeah so it's it's a week or more right that he's trying this Mm -hmm. um
1: Yeah. And I think it's like after a week or so that Henry's kind of saying, all right, we have to bury her, you know, like this is getting out of hand.
0: Yeah. Um, um, yep.
1: Seven days. I had that in my notes. Okay. After, it's, Henry says it's been seven days. That's kind of when he's putting his foot down, like, you know, it's time to move on.
0: So, um, yeah, just definitely definitely an interesting, like, set of events there that happens just with his, you know, all the attempts that he tries to, to use there to revive her. I don't, I mean... And he doesn't really even give up, right? Because sort of jumping ahead... Mm-hmm. um to his conversation with Childermas, like when he like runs, you know, through the King's Roads to Norrell's house to, you know, whatever, like, like it that's what he's yelling about is why didn't you help me? Like why didn't you give me the thing? So which is interesting because like the trigger for that is Childermas saying you know, oh, watch out because Norrell's gonna try to stop your book. You know, mm. by any means necessary. But when he gets there, I mean, there's yes, frustration about the book and stuff, and oh, you know, what did I ever do? You know, except be nice and you know, kind of do what Norrell says. Um, you know, which is kind of true, but not completely <laughs> true. Like, sure, um, it's a partial truth. Yeah, I mean, it's like, a, like. It's not a pants on fire if if we're doing like PolitiFact or, you know, whatever it is where they rate like right. the statements from politics. Like it's not a pants on fire thing, but it, it might right. be like a so-so or like a yeah, mo- mostly tree. Yeah. Even. yeah. Um, but the thing that he really gets mad about and, and is sort of yell- like as Norrell sort of looking down over the banister, you know, on the stairway. Um, you know, he's yelling up to him about like why didn't you answer? Like tell me what it is that you use to, you know, revive Lady Paul and and Norrell ignores him and walks away. Like poignantly mm-hmm. ignores him, or or pointedly, I mean, igno- ignores him and walks away. Um I suppose it's also poignant, but pointedly is the word I am to say. Um Yeah, so just thinking on that that like it's it's like he's still not done with it and then of course at the end with when he's incarcerated and sort of thinking or talking through sort of a doctorish moment there right like of of his like coming coming to conclusions while he's talking Mm. um of, you know, oh, may- maybe it's because I'm not mad enough. Like, maybe I need to be a little bit crazier. Um, right. th- what What's less doctor than that? Like, maybe I should be more crazy um, than I already am uh, right. in order right. to get, you know, accomplish what I need to accomplish. Um,
1: right, because he's starting to make the connection of fairy magic. Right, And how does one summon a fairy? Well, he knows that somebody the king could see one he knows that there was a fairy present um and what and and like kind of putting that together with lady pole i think kind of starts to make this realization that
0: Mm
1: -hmm. okay mad people seem to have some sort of insight into
0: yeah
1: the other realm and so yeah i just gotta get a little crazier and then maybe i'll be able to summon one too um so it's like, yeah he there's a very logical series of conclusions on his decision to go crazy. Um, he sort of thinks it through and kind of you know goes through it logically before he decides to go mad
0: yeah, um, I also so um just to talk about stephen and and the gentleman real quick here too, because like it's during all of that various attempts where um strange tries to summon the gentleman right? or a a fairy of some kind
1: right, right yeah um yeah
0: and uh I, I like that exchange of you know uh you know he can neither see us nor hear us he's attempting to sum- summon me ignorant fool and then mm-hmm. and then Stephen points out like well, he may be ignorant but he still succeeded it, uh, you're after, here after all you? you are here <laughs> um which like doesn't seem to have occurred to the gentleman, right? right. Like, like, <laughs> which I find interesting, given our former, our, our not that long ago conversation of, um, you know, sort of what are the sort of tricks that you can use, and it's like, mm. you know, if it's interesting to me that if the gentleman can sort of fool Norrell and strange and others without their knowing it like he got fooled without his knowing too Mm -hmm. so you know uh caveat fairy i guess you know um,
1: right right well and and again this ongoing sense which i think is in keeping with tradition that like there are rules of fairy it's not a completely you know nonsensical place, their, their rules are arbitrary seeming to us. They don't follow, you know, why this should happen if you do that. Like, it doesn't necessarily understand, you know, we can't see the reason why A leads to B. But nevertheless, there are certain laws that, you know, must be obeyed. And the gentleman can't go outside of those laws you know right. like now there are plenty of things that he can do that we can't but it seems like if you summon him he will come now he might be able to hide himself but right yeah if if yes if you build it he can't help but go there and like and, yeah it maybe that didn't ever occur to him that you know oh there's a reason i just showed up here um he kind of in his own mind thought it was all up to himself. And I like I I love then his kind of petulant, like we're just gonna mess with him, um, like Stephen, like make those make those pages ruffle. He'll he'll believe there's a wind in this you <laughs> right. know, Like then it's just like well if we're here we're just gonna screw with him. Um,
0: but also that Stephen doesn't right right like the gentleman does it himself right um which is also interesting that that Stephen seems to have some ability to, mm-hmm. I don't know if right. refuse is quite the right word, but resist maybe, yeah. Yeah. you know, his uh, commands to some degree, um, which any good like servant knows what they can sort of maybe get away with. Right? Of right. right. Maybe not, maybe sometimes it's better to pretend you didn't hear a thing than, you know, that you heard it or something. Along
1: right, how to how to refuse without it seeming like you're refusing. is sure. sort of that's the uh, the subtle art of that profession.
0: Um and thinking back to that exchange too, I think it's also interesting then um when you think about like that's pretty much also what happens at uh the king. You know, with the king that mm-hmm. Jonathan's trying to summon him trying to summon the gentleman or a fairy in general Um, and again he succeeds but he never he i mean he realizes it by the way that the king is talking and what happens later um but he doesn't seem to realize that he caused it necessarily
1: right
0: um and also the gentleman like uses that opportunity to take the king through the king's roads how appropriate um, to um, this field, right out in the middle of nowhere, uh, where he's almost impaled by Stephen. Right, but again, mm-hmm. through um, Strange's intervention, the king returns and you know right. doesn't get killed at, in that particular moment. But it's again that thing of like, like does the gentleman realize that that was? Strange's attempt to summon him, and that it kind of worked, even if it ended up, you know, almost being used to um, the the gentleman's, you know, sort of purpose, you know, by by taking the king and trying to get him killed. Of course, the the thing the gentleman focuses focuses on in that instance is that he was thwarted by Strange, so it only sort of makes him angrier at Strange. Mm-hmm or more determined to, you know, steal his wife or whatever. Um, But, like, he doesn't seem to realize, like, oh, Strange tried to summon me, and I appeared there. And, like, he just sort of uses that opportunity to his own benefit.
1: Right. Right. Like, he just never put two and two together before, that, like, the way Stephen kind of says, and yet you're here, and there's that pause of kind of, huh, like...
0: (laughs) I, I dare say, yes, I dare say.
1: Right. You Um, won't admit that, but, but there's a little, a little light bulb goes on in that moment. Yeah. And I think it makes the rivalry seem more evenly matched than it has, you know, like the gentleman isn't all powerful. There are laws that even he can't help but obey.
0: And, and I just noticed this in, in reading the exchange, um, the little bit further down, um, in my notes here, uh, So the gentleman initially says, he's attempting to summon me. Um, And you get the, well, he, you know, after all, you are here. And then later he said, you know, he's like sort of mocking him still, right? You know, oh, watching this fellow try to do magic is like, you know, watching a man sit down to dinner with his coat on backwards. Um, And Stephen says, well, he just lost his wife, sir. And the gentleman said, said, yes. And what a delicious irony that that he summons me. So it's almost like, you can almost throw that off, like, as a throwaway that he summons me, like that he's attempting to summon me, but he -hmm. says that he summoned me. So is that like a sort of tacit admission that like he was indeed summoned? Um,
1: Right. Right. And for, you know, for the gentleman who styles himself as a King, um, summoned is such a like kind of servant word, you know, which like, that's how the Norl and whatever talk about the fairies and in the past with the golden age magicians was always like the golden age magicians and their fairy servants, you know, whereas like the gentlemen would have it that we didn't serve anybody. We, we gave you access to our magic and we allowed you to, you know, do the things that you did and, and we, you know, empowered you to do these things. So there's, like, this disagreement between who exactly is in charge here. Yeah. Um, And I think, like, up until recently, it kind of did seem like the fairies have all the power. Whereas, I don't know, maybe that's less true here. Like, you start to get a sense that, like, well, I don't know. Maybe there are certain ways in which the fairies are subservient to Mm. magicians. If magicians know what the rules are and how to sort of manipulate them.
0: Right. All right. Um, um, so in the last few minutes here, uh, we should probably talk through some of the other bits here. Um, maybe with noral first and kind of the Norrell, Childermass, lacelles triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know that there's this ton to say because I think we've alluded to a lot of it already. Um but just sure. that that I think the things I want to point out um are like I said before the cells is kind of helping uh I don't know if that's the right verb but helping Noral to sever a lot of his contacts. Um which is Obviously, problematic from like sort of a, a broader scale of like what it you know what does Norrell want to get done like if he's if he's gonna make magic respectable and have sort of his noralite, you know magic uh, class then he needs like people to like support and champion his cause but Lascelles is kind of you know uh, cutting ties with the publisher. Who you know presume like I, I don't think it's not one hundred percent clear to me. But is this the same publisher who published morals book?
1: I, I thought so. I don't know if now I don't know if they. Was, I I would. I, think I got so. the
0: impression that it was. I got the
1: impression that it was. It's uh, certainly the same as publishes their periodical because it okay. sells threatens to. go elsewhere with that so i kind of took it that like this is their publisher like they've used him for the book and for the journal and whatever else they want to do
0: and presumably like this was a reputable publisher so like Mm -hmm. i mean given norrell's you know focus on making magic reputable then right you know you breaking with a reputable publisher and potentially going to one who's less reputable um you know is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um but then there's like, you know, the Childermass stuff where I mean Childermass for uh, is it, so I think I think LaSalle's is right. Like I think he's you know, maybe maybe like the gentleman he's using elements of both truth and lies mm-hmm. in what he's saying, but I think he's right to say that like Childermass does what Childermass wants basically, right? Like that maybe Childermass isn't Stephen level of loyal to Norrell, you know, but
1: yeah. Childermass
0: is still pretty loyal. Like, you know, a lot, all of his advice really to Norrell has been pretty solid. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's not like he uh, right. has been right. leading Norrell down a bad path. Now maybe he's hedging his bets in certain ways and you know, doing other things, but...
1: Um... Right, and he doesn't always go about things in the way that, like, he's not loyal to the letter, but, you know, he's not always going to use methods that Norrell wants him to, but in spirit, you know, in terms of the guy who kind of has Noral's best interest in mind, and, like, the best interest of, of English magic, it seems like children mass believes what he's saying and actually is trying to work for those things yeah
0: yeah um and yeah i mean draw light's already gone um it's hard to say who else is still championing norrell's cause at this point um yeah, i mean he has sort kind of, of some ruffians about the house yeah. to like you know, rough up uh, uh, Jonathan when he arrives. But it's not clear, like, they might just be LaSalle's buddies. Like, it's not clear that they're anyone of import or, you know, uh, influence.
1: And he kind of sort of has the allegiance of the government, but not because they especially like him or believe in him. It's more like he's convinced them that the alternatives are worse. Like... It's like they they kind of wish they could be rid of Norrell. But if the alternative is wild magic from the north that has the, you know, servant classes up in arms, you know, or, you know, or that causes like class unrest, then, okay, Norrell is like the lesser of those evils. Right. You know.
0: Right. So that's the other piece of it, right? That Norrell sees very quickly sort of how he can sort of link strange to you know this uprising where there's this very nebulous sort of like attachment to the raven king but uh he figures if he can sort of you know it's 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 that idea of like linking your political enemy to Mm. some evil thing where maybe yeah, you know, maybe this group donated to their campaign or something and, like, the person didn't even know it or, like, it was a relatively small amount or something and, you know, it's maybe kind of ridiculous to think that they're holding, like, sway over, you know, the politician because of that, but it beca- it's more about the appearance of the thing than it is um, the actuality of whatever influence might, you know, be there. And and so Norrell very quickly... I mean, Nor- Norrell's not a stupid guy, you know. No ma- As much as he might, like, dislike putting himself out in public or whatever, like, he's clearly very talented and capable and smart and, you know, all of that. And so he very quickly sort of sees the usefulness of attaching um, uh, the, the black magic, so to speak, of mm. what... Um, you know strange is doing to try to revive his wife to you know the raven king and this uprising like oh we can't we can't have another king we already have a king like mm-hmm. which is i don't i mean we don't know much still about what the raven king is but like you don't know, like was he actually the king or was he just was it like just a title like right right you know um and that sort of thing so yeah, he. Yeah, anyway, all that to say that he definitely kind of latches onto that, but again, it's not. It's not entirely clear how much because you also get like. Is it Paul or Grant or someone who, alludes to the fact that like Norrell still hasn't finished his. Um, I think
1: it might be Paul. Is it yeah, Paul? He still yeah. hasn't finished his beacons.
0: Yeah, his beacons, right? Like, so this is this is the government contractor, you know, aspect of it too, of like, oh my gosh, like we hired (laughs) these contractors to do something and they're, you know, they've run up over budget and it's gone, you know, it's a big, big situation going on here. Um, You know, so there's also that aspect of it, right? Like where, okay, we've kind of attached ourselves to this guy from a government perspective. So, like they want to save face, but that's only going to go on for so long, mm-hmm. you know, and that's starting to get stretched as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And how long does does it before, you know, the wild magic of the Raven King is bad for the kingdom and, you know, bad for our government before that evolves into magic period is bad for Mm. our government like norrell's kind of turning them against these rival magicians in the short term but i think in the long term that's bad news for him too like eventually he's just going to be another one of these magicians who don't do what they're told and cause more trouble than they're worth so it's a kind of short-sighted you know, even though technically he has the loyalty of the government, it's, like, not very stable.
0: Yeah. Um. So, yeah, anything else about sort of Norrell and his actions and um, relationships here?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, no, and we kind of talked about the the house breaking and everything, right?
0: Yeah. I mean Noral doesn't do anything there, right? It's all it's all no. strange and Lascelles and then the guys who sort of carry strange away. No. Um, so then the other bit of course is Lady Pole and um uh, uh Segundus and Honeyfoot. Um mm. so we talked a bit about Lady Pole and kinda of her attempts to um, get a message to Strange, sort of warn him and Arabella of what's going to happen. We've seen her uh, you know, sort of going into sort of these strange fairy story you know, uh, snippets or whatever um, whenever she tries to Impart some detail about, mm-hmm. excuse me, about whatever. Um, yeah. And then we get this uh, sort of revelation from honeypot mm. that maybe there's a connection going on here. So I wanted to, I want to spend a few minutes on this because, um, so he says, you know, my mother used to tell me tales of magicians, different creatures. Uh, it was what first drew and magic the romance of it tales i heard when i was a boy um when she died i went around collecting folk tales writing them up and that story lady pole told mm-hmm. last night the lighthouse keeper in his cupboard it made me think i've heard it before um yada 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 um so of course so i i like this sort of like development of draw light or uh, draw light, i keep doing that of honeyfoot and um the uh sort of the idea that this is right in the sort of early period of the nineteenth century. So if so Waterloo was in eighteen fifteen, um the Battle of Waterloo. Mm. So I mean assuming we're not again, time's sort of fuzzy here, so we're not entirely sure. Like sure. okay, it took Jonathan some time to get back home and, you know, maybe he and Arabella were living happily for several months and, you know, while he was writing his book, his book's done now, so he's at least been home long enough to, like, write the book and, you know. Right.
1: Um,
0: right, you know, so... She, they made some drawings and stuff. So, like, a year, year and a half, right. two years, right. maximum. years at
1: the most, yeah.
0: um, You know, so we're talking, you know, maybe uh, 18, 17, 18. Um, this is kind of puts it in the period of that 19th century folklore mm-hmm. collector uh sort of which is sort of tied to like national pride movements um Mm -hmm. although not in sort of the bad way we think of it as it develops later into the 20th century but you know sort of these um ideas of sort of these nations that are starting to become modern nations but like connecting with the roots of you know their stories and their national and and you know, whatever pride um, they had. Um, so you have, um, of course, the the granddaddy of them all, the famous ones are the Grimm's fairy tale collection, um, which was first published in 1812. So actually a few years before Waterloo even. Um, and then it was like subsequently like published and expanded a bunch of times. Um, you have, there's a few like predecessors to that. So you have like the Charles Perrault, um, Mother Goose stories um Mm -hmm. you know with like cinderella and this and that it's not entirely clear i think which ones were like ones that he sort of took from other people he did a lot of his own sort of expansion and embellishment and all of that so it's it's not quite the same as what sort of the grims at least claimed to do which was to take the tales right as they were told Right, although
1: I I will say there's debate about that. As well, well, that's why but, I threw in the claim yeah. to do yes
0: um, whether or not that happened. But but then you also get um, in 1835 you get Elias Lonrot who published his Kalevala. So you know would and had spent years before that you know going around doing the same kind of thing in Finland that the Grimms had done in Germany, um, in uh, Norway you have. Peter Christian Adjuransson and and Jorgen Moe, and I I probably mispronounced at least one of those names, Um, uh, doing the same thing in in the early 1840s. Um, You've got people in Russia doing sort of Russian and Slavic legend. Um, And then by the end of the century, you have like the Andrew Lang fairy books. Um, You have Joseph Jacobs, who's doing English and Celtic books of um fairy tales um and jeremiah Curtin, who's doing specifically ireland uh, apparently was a big source for um yates uh, mm. and and some of his stuff and he also did he also sort of collected some others but i think they were more like translations from like russian and slavic er- mm-hmm. uh, areas as well but so you know this 19th century in inter- and i'm sure there were others i mean that's just sort of like the highlights sure, the real.
1: highlights yeah um
0: the you know the this 19th century sort of interest in folklore and and national culture and mm-hmm. um, you know kind of not only just collecting but in some cases like the Kalabala like synthesizing the stories and do Mm-hmm. well it's hard to call the Kalevala like a single tale because it's still, sure it's still very much a collection but
1: but it makes a valiant effort
0: yeah but but def- telling a tale but definitely you know kind of stringing them into something more narrative like than you know just individual stories mm-hmm. um so it's I I find it really interesting then that we get like honeyfoot like like, this is just, like, he's sort of the hobbyist of, the, right. right? Like, he's the one that you don't hear about, but he, he was doing it all along. Maybe not quite as early as the Grimm's, but, you know, it, 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 I, we don't know when his mother died, but it sounds like he had, he's he been doing this a while. And, and, of course, he has these books, right? So, like, he's written up all of these tales. He has several mm-hmm. books of them. So he must have been, like, like this is pre, you know, before he met Segundus. Right. and like maybe maybe he was a member of the you know um <clears throat> the magicians society while he was doing this as well but it it was definitely it seems like it's been some time that he spent you know doing this. so i just yeah you
1: kind of get the like he doesn't say that his mother died prematurely but you do get the sense that this is like a lifelong pursuit in some sense that like, he's been doing this. Like, it's not like she died a year ago. It's like, no, he's been working on this for a yeah. long time and seems to know what he's talking about. You know, he's recognizing some of the motifs and tales right. just from, even if they're not quite the same, he kind of, he has an ear for it. He's spent a lot of time thinking about these sorts of things.
0: right. Um, yeah, what's yeah, the, um... yeah, and it's
1: it's fun to think of Honeyfoot as like the lost folklorist in this list of great folktale collectors and everything.
0: Yeah, what what's the um, uh, like like the numbering system or or whatever that they use for like the yeah
1: the the, uh, the Arne Thompson yeah this is yeah. like
0: like. Like this is like Proto Arn Thompson, right? Like right. It, you know, yeah.
1: He's
0: this is this is the Honeyfoot numbering.
1: Right. Like I reckon that that's ATU seventeen. Quick, yeah. Look up the motif. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, right, and they're like picking out specific words of like, oh, she said, you know, such and such, you know. Right. I remember that. That's from right. Like you know, whatever tale. So, like
1: <laughs> reference this over here. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um. yeah, and it's kind of fun to kind of the way that you know Susanna Clark, the writer, and everything like uses that as very important information that mm-hmm. they get. That like your knowledge of these, you know, children's stories and folk tales and everything is kind of a a way to tap into the ancient traditions of mm-hmm. the land and of your people, um, which is where the nationalism comes in and everything that like, yeah, I think these folk, you know, these folk collectors could and did appreciate the stories as stories, but also there was a sense of like, this is important cultural work that we're doing that we're like recovering our,
0: or saving, you know, our, our,
1: yeah, right, R- yeah, yeah. Like we're preserving and, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, saving our culture for posterity so that we can further understand it. Um, yeah, and again, that's the that's the positive side. There's an underbelly to that which got a little more dangerous, you know, the further this all went on. But sure. um, and right plenty of people later exploited you know the work that was kind of you know or or misinterpreted the intention of some of these things but um but i think that's in here too like this is a whole story about english magic and i don't think the nationalistic side both positive and negative is lost on like the authors here um
0: sure um yeah so i mean obviously they um you know try to get lady pole to you know uh give her stories and they kind of um you know do their their little sort of philological historical you know mm-hmm. analysis of each one and I, I like how it's like okay so so don't go at it directly maybe talk more generally about it and she comes up and like it's just like this very, like yeah <laughs> like whatever um but i mean it is a different story and so you get like the coal, tom blue and like other references that like oh like that that references this you know fairy guy that Maybe you know it's like oh like maybe there's something in here, um, but I, <laughs> what I especially love about all this is that the end result is um, with your permission, madam, we'd like to write to Mister Strains, and she goes yes, please, <laughs> like like literally what I was asking you to do, you know, well I don't know, yes yeah, for years, weeks, yeah, you know, yeah, however, yeah, like yeah, however long she's been saying like. Like, she literally says at one point early in the episode, you must send a message to Jonathan Strange. Yeah. And and by the end of the episode, they're like, may we send a message to Jonathan Strange <laughs> on your behalf? And she's, yes, please. <laughs> like, like, that's the clearest thing she's said of all of yeah. this stuff yeah. um, so far. So, it, yeah, that's yeah. definitely... Uh, and
1: it's the way that the actress kind of says it with, like, that very earnest, like like she's not even angry she's just like kind of I don't know relieved to finally like have this very simple point be coming across um it is really funny yeah exactly (laughs) I I also like the way that when earlier you said she said like send a message to Jonathan Strange like nobody listens to her um right when she's kind of in that, you know, when she knows something's something bad is happening, she's saying, he must not make the bargain. I mean to say, Masoak, Masoak. And then she starts, you know, crying for Belle. You know, Belle, no. And I like the way that that connects to, like, the Bells that she's haunted by. Like, the way Arabella's name. Uh, like, okay. I feel like it would be easy for Segundus to misunderstand what she's saying. Like, she's sure. calling for her friend. And but he would just hear like, oh, she's hearing bells again. The poor lady, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's a really good kind of misdirection. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh...
1: Yeah, and and the tales that she tells are nonsensical, and they don't stop being kind of random and crazy. But um, the way it is about like, fairy abductions, when you start to listen to the stories that she's telling. It's about, like, you know, there was a, there was a Christian, or the wife of a Christian lighthouse keeper found a cupboard, and the cupboard kept calling to her, and she, her husband thought she was mad, but when she went in the cupboard, she was never seen again. Like, she is telling kind of nonsense tales, but they're relevant to, like, that's the kind of pattern that, you know, I guess Honeyfoot starts to see is... She's telling stories sort of about her experience.
0: So. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: So yeah. Um. But yes. Finally, by the end of the the episode, at long last, Lady Pole, uh, like five episodes in, gets she, her message across.
0: She succeeds, and yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Vanquilis shows up ever so briefly at the end of the episode.
0: Right. Yep.
1: Just to remind us that he's there.
0: Yeah, I don't know that I have anything else really to kind of say i mean he yeah Vinculus shows up and kind of um i guess like with the intent of him being a new like like the second guest right at uh their facility is that so the guy the guy who brings him there
1: or are they just sort of passing?
0: I thought the intent, I thought like he went there specifically to bring Well, him. he has
1: a message for Steven, right? But I'm not sure where he's being taken. I don't remember. Hmm. So we might have to come back to that.
0: Maybe I misunderstood that bit of it.
1: Okay, we'll have to come back to that because I don't remember for sure. Okay. All right. Well, Well, yeah. So
0: I guess we'll talk about next time then what happens uh, with all that. But yeah.
1: Right. Two episodes. So the kind of final act is left to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right. With um, Jonathan determined to go crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, yeah. We'll, We'll see, I guess. All
1: right. Sounds good, see you then.